There are some places in the world that often get overlooked by their bigger, shinier neighbors. The Baltic region of Europe is often overshadowed by their Scandinavian neighbors, and most people can't name all the numerous islands of the Caribbean, save for Cuba, Jamaica, and the Bahamas. Good thing is, this podcast specializes in finding the diamonds in the rough. I believe that all places hold their own special secrets and treasures. The nation we're visiting today is one of those hidden gems, sandwiched between the Amalfi coast of Italy and Mykonos in Greece. Croatia is the home to many wondrous regions, including Dalmatia and the blue waters of the Adriatic Sea. So let's take a deeper look into the mixed cultures and diverse history of the lesser-known area of the Balkans. I'm Scott Parrish, and you're listening to Dying to Eat, the podcast that delves into different cultures of the world throughout time while exploring the different attitudes about death and food. If you love history, good eating, and fascinating stories, then I've got a great show in store for you, so make sure you stick around to the end to see what's cooking this week. I'd also like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, thetailoredhemp.com. Did you know, according to Modern Dog Magazine and Dog Dream CBD, that CBD oil can reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and inflammation in your canine? If you want to learn more and want to order a high-quality CBD, visit thetailoredhemp.com. Now on with the show. I'll be honest. The reason I'm doing this episode on Croatia is because my writer-researcher recently spent her holiday there and came back with a yearning to learn more. According to her, it's a beautiful country with towns that go right up to the sea and water that's so unbelievably blue, I don't think there's even a proper name for the color. That's her words, not mine. I'd love to see it. Croatia consists of the mainland country connected to the rest of Europe and dozens of islands scattered across the Adriatic Sea. The country is divided into three geographical and historical regions. First, you have Slovenia, located in the upper arm of the country. Then you have Istria, a small peninsula on the north, and Dalmatia, coastal southern strip. Each region has its own climate and landscape, from plains and mountains to river valleys and blue lagoons. Much of the weather is dictated by a collection of wind currents known as the Adriatic Wind Currents, each with its own name. Bura is the cold wind that blows down from the mainland, while Hugo is the warm wind that occurs when the cyclone develops in the Adriatic, bringing rain and clouds. The menstrual wind is the general favorite. It's a uh, warm, friendly wind that creates the perfect conditions for sailing. This means warm summers and dry winters for the people to enjoy. With Croatia being as far north as it is, the summer days are hot and long. The sun sets late in the day around 8 p.m. and rises as early as 4.30 a.m. The people of Croatia, called Croats, spend their days either sailing the sea or making a living through the booming tourist trade or working the farms and orchards harvesting grapes for wine, lavender, and olives. Croatian cuisine is heavily influenced by Turkish, Central European, and Italian cuisine. Typical dishes are cabbage leaves stuffed with minced meat. That's called which rolls the seasoned grilled meat along with the dumplings and pickles. Along the coast, fish is served with a dish of Swiss chard mixed with potatoes and crushed garlic and olive oil. Personally, I'm not a fan of Swiss chard, but you know, it's in there for somebody. 
There are local delicacies such as cheese from an island called Tag and wine from any number of good quality small producers, particularly in Dalmatia. Settled in the crook between Italy and Greece, Croatia has long served as a bridge between Central Europe and the Mediterranean even before the country had been established, and its history had been marked by this position as a borderland. Little is clear-cut about Croatia's history. Uncertain origins and crisscrossing alliances abound. Even today, many details of Croatia's emergence as a nation are still shrouded in mystery. For example, historians disagree on the genesis of the earliest tribes of Croats. Were they Slavic, and if so, how closely were they related to other Slavic groups? How did they come to occupy the land that we now call Croatia? Further down the timeline, Croatian history becomes an even more complicated algorithm of shifting ethnic and national identities. Admitting these uncertainties, there are still a few key developments to keep in mind when trying to make sense of Croatia's past. But let's start a little earlier than that. Fossils of the Netherlands dating to the Middle Paleogenic period have been unearthed in northern Croatia, with the most famous and the best, pres the best presented site in Kapinja. Remnants of several Neolithic and Chalcolithic cultures have found in all regions of the country. The largest portion of the sites in the northern Croatia River valleys and the most significant cultures whose presence were discovered include Startifo, Vestival, and Baden. These are all cultural names. The Iron Age left traces of early Illyrium Hallstatt culture and the Celtic Latin culture. Man, that's a lot of cultures. All of these were nationalities that had managed to forge and mold iron into weapons and tools. Strangely enough, I couldn't find any explanation as to why these people didn't stick around. Some historians think that they are all merged together, creating the first earliest culture of Croatia. Other historians think they simply died out because irrigation in Croatia was too complicated. You see, the soil in Croatia is perfectly fertile. And you can grow just about anything on it. The problem is there are so many large stones in the ground that without the modern tools that we have today, it was just too much trouble to remove them. No matter what the truth is, that certainly isn't where Croatia's story ends. Much later, the region was settled by Liburnians and Illyrians, while the first Greek colonies were established on the Vis and Avar Highlands. Dalmatia was the northern part of the Illyrium Kingdom between the 4th BC until the Illyrium Wars in the 220s BC and 168 BC when the Roman Republic established its proletariate south of the river Neathera. The Roman Republic wanted to get to the coast, where they could gain access to the Adriatic Sea and expand their empire even further. So the area north of Naethra was slowly incorporated into the Roman possession until the province of the Illyrium had formally established around 32 to 27 BC. From about 11 BC to about the 5th century AD, 
Romans ruled the roost. Between 6 and 9 AD, the Dalmatians, I know I have to laugh every time I say that, the Dalmatians raised the last in the series of revolts together with the Hannonians, another non-Roman nationality to the north, but it was finally crushed in 10 AD. The Illyricum was split into two provinces, Pannonia and Dalmatia. And yes, if you're out there laughing about this too, and snickering, and you wondered, that is where the word Dalmatian, like the cute spotted dog, came from. For once, that's not a coincidence. The providence of Dalmatia spread inland to cover all of the Dinaric Alps and most of the eastern Adriatic coast. Dalmatia was also the birthplace of the Roman Emperor Diocletian, who, upon retirement from being emperor in 305 AD, built a large palace near Saluna, out of which the city of Split later developed. The Romans, in their conquering heyday, built a network of roads that linked the Dalmatian coast with the Algenian and Black Seas and the Dubonnet, making the region their land of plenty. One only has to sit amid the remnants of Emperor Diocletian's palace in Split, the, the greatest Roman ruins in Eastern Europe, to get a taste of what Rome's former glory was really like in that region. While the remnants of the Roman Empire in Solin, the town that was once the Roman capital of Saluna, are not significant, the still-standing amphitheater in Pula feels like a grand cousin of the Colosseum in Rome. After the Western Roman Empire collapsed in 476, with the beginning of the Migration period, Julius Nepos shortly ruled his diminished domain from Diocletian. The palace, after his 476 flight from Italy, became its home. The region was then ruled by Ostrogoths up to 535 when Justinian the first added the territory to the Byzantine Empire. Later, the Byzantines formed the theme of Dalmatia in the same territory. While the Roman Empire was first thriving and then imploding, Croats and other Slavic tribes were eking out an existence in what some historians may think have been the marshlands of modern-day Ukraine. They were viably forming communities and then migrating and warring upon each other. Historians argue that by the middle of the 7th century, Croat tribes moved to Pannonia and Dalmatia, and powerful clans and rulers emerged. In the 6th and 7th centuries, Slavs arrived in the Western Balkans, settled on the Byzantine territory along the Adriatic, and in the hinterlands and gradually merging with the indigenous Latinized population. Eventually, they accepted the Roman Catholic Church, Though preserving a Slavic liturgy, in the 9th century, an independent Croatian state developed with its center in northern Dalmatia, later incorporating Croatia proper and Slovenia as well. The state grew into a powerful military force under King Tomslav. Crowned as king in 925, Croatia, the kingdom, was born. Tomislav united Dalmatia and Pannonia, into a single kingdom, and under his rule, Croatia became one of the most powerful forces in the Balkans. Although the exact ge geographical extent of 
Tomislav's kingdom is really unknown, and it's very controversial even today. After his death, his royal successors continued to rule the kingdom until the latter part of the 11th century, when Hungary stepped in. How and why exactly Croatia merged with Hungary are points of debate among historians, but according to research by the U.S. Library of Congress, King Ladislaus of Hungary became the new ruler of Croatia in 1091 after the death of the last Croatian king. Sounds like a movie, doesn't it? The consequences of the change to the Hungarian king included the introduction of feudalism and the rise of the native noble families such as the Frankopan and the Sebic. The later kings sought to restore some of their previously lost influence by giving certain privileges to the towns. Opposition to Hungary's claim led to a war and then to a personal union of Croatia and Hungary in 1102. Nonetheless, even under a dynastic union with Hungary, institutions of separate Croatian statehoods were maintained through the Saber. The Saber is an assembly of Croatian nobles, and the Ban, which is about the same as a viceroy. In addition, the Croatian nobles retained their lands and their titles. In the 1400s, when the Ottoman Empire was attempting to take over the Balkans, Croatia was stuck in a battle between the Turks and the Hungarians. As the Turkish incursion into Europe started, Croatia once again became a border area. The Ottoman conquest of Croatia began with the fall of a town of Imoski in 1492. Croats fought an increasing number of battles and gradually lost increasing swaths of territory to the Ottoman Empire. Ottoman conquest led to the 1493 Battle of Karbava and the 1526 Battle of Mohacs, both ending in decisive Ottoman victories. After years of strenuous bashing from the Ottomans, Croatia succeeded in resisting them and joining the Habsburgs. Croatia would eventually be incorporated into the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The Austrian Habsburgs elected to the throne of Croatia in 1527 after the death of King Louis II of Hungary at the Battle of Mohacs. They defended the what was called the remnant of the remnants of Croatia by establishing the military frontier, a defensive zone along the border with the Ottoman-controlled lands. Because it was ruled directly by the Habsburgs' war council, the military frontier further reduced the amount of land under the control of the Croatian nobles, uh, nobles, the Sabres, and of the Bon. Furthermore, its military units and their land rights attracted not only some Croatian peasants, but also a larger Orthodox influx from the Ottoman-conquered territories. Such was the origin of Croatia's minority Serb population. Now keep up with me right here now. I'm going to be tossing around a lot of names. Some of them I may even pronounce correctly, so stick with me. I can't get around it. In November 1526, a Hungarian parliament elected Jan Sop Oyeri as the new king of Hungary. And I feel like celebrating after saying that name. In December 1526, another Hungarian parliament elected Fernand Habsburg as king of Hungary. On the other side, the Croatian parliament met in certain and also chose Ferdinand Habsburg as new ruler of Croatia under the condition 
that he provided protection to Croatia against the Ottoman Empire while respecting its political rights. He was a king from afar, ruling in just about every way but name. Within the borders, the Parliament of Croatia maintained their own sense of control, if only just for a little while. A few years later, both crowns of Hungary and Croatia would be united again in Habsburg's hands and the Union would be restored. Meanwhile, the Ottoman Empire further expanded in the 16th century to include most of Slovenia, western Bosnia, which was then called Turkish Croatia, and Lika, a small province in central Croatia. After the western fort of Bihaci, <laughs> I love that word, finally fell in 1592, only small parts of Croatia remained unconquered, and the Ottoman army was successfully repelled for the first time on the territory of Croatia following the, following the Battle of Sisak in 1593. The lost territory was partially restored except for large parts of today's Bosnia and Herzegovina as well as the Lika and Slovenia regions of the present Croatia. By the 18th century, the Ottoman Empire was driven out of Hungary and Austria brought the empire under central control. With the Treaty of Sistba in 1791, Ottoman held areas of Donji Lapak in Senegrade, I think I got one of those, along with villages of Dresnik, Grod, and Jasnovak, were seceded to Habsburg monarchy and incorporated into the Croatian military frontier. But the struggle was far from over. The Croat nobility was impoverished, often culturally assimilated, and too weak to withstand the Habsburg centralization and the Germanization that began in the 18th century under the Austrian Archduchess and Holy Roman Empress Maria Theresa, and continued under her son, the Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II. As the best defense of their rights and privileges, the Croats turned to cooperate with the Hungarians, but this choice would later expose them to the rising force of Hungarian nationalism. When Hungarian, rather than Latin, was imposed as the official language in Hungary and Croatia, Croatians' resistance took shape in the Illyrian movement of the 1830s and 1840s. The Illyrianists, primarily intellectuals, professionals, clergymen, and gentry, led by a linguistic reformer, Luadedit Guy, strove to defend Croatian interests by calling out for the unification of all the southern Slavs, to be facilitated through the adaptation of a single literacy language. Though the Illyrianists failed to win over the other southern Slavs, they did succeed in integrating the linguistically and administratively divided Croats under one national movement. Threatened by Hungarian nationalism in the revolution of 1848 and hoping for national unification and autonomy within the Austrian Empire, the Croats, under von Josef Josik, an Illyrianist, sided with the, Australian, with the Austrian dynasty against the Hungarians. Yet instead of a, a, an award, a reward, yet instead of a reward, the Croats received the same central control and Germanization that were dealt out to the Hungarians as punishment. 
they essentially traded one ruler for another that was exactly the same. I imagine they must have been tired of fighting at this point and sick of being tossed around like a hot potato between different foreign rulers because Croatia remained under Austrian rule for almost a hundred years. The only thing that brought all of that to an end was, of course, the bloodiest war to ever take place in human history. In 1918, after the end of World War I and the fall of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Croatia's loyalists were once again up in the air. Croatia suffered great loss of life in the war, and while there was some late effort to establish a Croatian section of the empire, ultimately, the military defeat led to the establishment of a separate southern Slavic state. A Croatian delegation decided to align forces with the Serbs, forming the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slavs. This Kingdom of Yugoslavia was a quick failure, declining into uprising and civil war with one rebel Croat group, the Ustazi, waging a brutal terrorist campaign to, ex to exterminate all Serbs and Jews. An opposition group, the Chetniks, fought back, but they too resorted to terrorism and massacring, <laughs> massacring Croats. I can't even speak English anymore. Oh my God. However, another group, the Partisans, led by Joseph Broz, or Tito, gained wide support after World War II. Tito became the leader of Yugoslavia. Under Tito's leadership, Yugoslavia, which included Bosnia and Herzegovina, Croatia, Macedonia, Montenegro, Slovenia, and Serbia, adopted type of planned market socialism and privately owned factories and estates were nationalized. Tito transformed Yugoslavia from a large agricultural nation into an industrialized one. After Tito's death in 1980, however, cracks in the Yugoslav system grew wider. Although the state inherited much of the Austro-Hungaria's military arsenal, including the entire fleet, the Kingdom of Italy moved rapidly to annex the state's most western territories, promised to her by the Treaty of London in 1915. An Italian army eventually took Istria, started to annex the Adriatic islands one by one, and even landed in Zadar. Partial resolution to the so-called Adriatic question would come in 1920 with the Treaty of Rapallo. The kingdom underwent a crucial change in 1921 to the dismay of Croatia's largest political party, the Croatian Peasant Party. The new constitution abolished the historical political entities including Croatia and Slovenia, centralized authority in the capital of Belgrade. The Croatian Peasant Party boycotted the government of the Serbian People's Radical Party throughout the period, except for a brief interlude between 1925 and 1927, when external Italian expansion, expansionism was at hand with her allies, Albania, Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria, that threatened Yugoslavia as a whole. The new Yugoslav regent, Prince Paul, oh my gosh, Kara Jordavik, save me there, permitted some relaxation in political life through 
though he prevented the restoration of full democratic rights. The desire for political change led to the formation of a united Yugoslav opposition, which argued for the reinstatement of democracy and for the constitutional reform. In Croatia, this opposition included the Peasant Party, now led by Vadko Malik. In the elections of 1938, the Peasant Party received 80% of the vote in Croatia and Dalmatia. Faced with such evidence of popular support for the opposition program, Prince Paul encouraged negotiations between the government and the, and the Malik. These culminated in the Sporazium, or the Agreement, of August 26, 1939, which created the autonomous Croatian Banovina, which is like a, it's like a providence. It's largely self-governing, except in defense and foreign affairs. The agreement provoked resentment among the Serbs, even in the opposition. World War II broke out soon after the Sporazium was signed, and the Yugoslav declared its neutrality. Invasion, occupation, and partition followed in 1941. In their campaign against Yugoslavia, the Germans exploited Croatian discontent, presenting themselves as liberators and inciting Croats in the armed forces to mutiny. In April 1941, Germans and Italians set up the independent state of Croatia, which was also embraced Bosnia and Herzegovina and those parts of Dalmatia that had not been seceded to Italy. Though the fact of this state was under occupation by the Germans and the Italian armies, a member of the old rebel group, the Ustazi, was placed into power, but only because the leader of the peasant party refused to be a puppet in their own government. Initially, there was enthusiasm for the independent state, but once in power, the Ustazi ruthlessly persecuted Serbs, Jews, Roma, and anti-fascist Croats. The Ustasi planned to eliminate Croatia's Serb minority partially by conversion from orthodoxy to Catholicism, partially by expulsion, and partially by extermination. As many as 350,000 to 450,000 victims were killed by the Ustasi massacres and in the notorious concentration camp of Jasnovic. Sporadic resistance, particularly by Croatia's Serbs, began almost immediately. It was the Socialist Party of Croatia that took lead in the resistance, providing a front and a program. Many were drawn to the Socialist Party by their broader popular front and by their emphasis on national self-determination. Mass enlistment in their ranks made the Socialist Party more successful in Croatia and in Bosnia and Herzegovina anywhere else outside their mountain strongholds. In 1944, most of Croatia, apart from the main cities, were liberated territory, and Croats were joining the partisans' ranks in large numbers. As the war neared its end, however, many Croats, especially those compromised by involvement with the Ustazi regime and those who opposed the communists, fled north along with other refugees toward the, uh, toward the Allied armies. British commanders refused to accept their surrender and handed them over to the socialists who took merciless revenge. Tens of thousands, including some civilians, were subsequently slaughtered on forced marches and in death camps. 
1945, Croatia was a republic within the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. Under the new communist system, privately owned factories and estates were nationalized and the economy was based on a type of planned market socialism. The country underwent rebuilding process, recovered from World War II, went through industrialization, and started developing tourism. The country's socialist system also provided free apartments from big companies, which, with the workers' self-management investments, paid for the living spaces. From 1963, the civilians of Yugoslavia were allowed to travel to almost any country because of the neutral politics. No visas were required to travel to eastern or western countries or to capitalist or communist nations. Such free travel is unheard of at, the, at this time in the eastern bloc countries and in some western countries, such as Spain or Portugal, both dictatorships at that time. This proved to be very helpful for Croatia's inhabitants who found working in foreign countries more financially rewarding. Upon retirement, a popular plan was to return to live in Croatia to buy more expensive property. In Yugoslavia, the people of Croatia were guaranteed free health care, free dental care, and secure pensions. The older generation found this very comforting as pensions were sometimes exceeded their former paychecks. Free trade and travel within the country also helped Croatian industries that imported and exported throughout all the former republics. Students and military personnel were encouraged to visit other republics to learn about the country and all levels of education, especially secondary education and higher education, were free. In reality, the housing was inferior. Inferior? In reality, the housing was inferior with poor heat and plumbing. The medical care often lacking even in availability of antibiotics Schools were propaganda machines, and travel was, a nece was necessary to provide the country with hard currency. The propagandists, who made people believe neutral pol policies equalized Serbs and Croats, severely restricted free speech and did not protect citizens from ethnic attacks. Private sector businesses did not grow as the taxes on private enterprise were often prohibitive. Inexperienced management sometimes ruled policy and controlled decisions by brute force. Strikes were forbidden. Owners and managers were not permitted to make changes or decisions that would impact their productivity or profit. Eventually, the economy grew into this type of socialism where everything was self-managed, in which workers controlled socially owned enterprises. This kind of market socialism created significantly better economic conditions than in the Eastern Bloc countries. Croatia went through intense industrialization in the 1960s and 70s, with the industrial output increasing several fold, and with Zerbeb surpassing Belgrade for the amount of industry. Before World War II, Croatia's industry was not significant, with a vast majority of people employed in agriculture. In 1991, the country was completely transformed into a modern, industrialized state. By the same time, the Croatian Adriatic coast had taken shape for an internationally popular tourist destination. All coastal republics profited greatly from this, as tourist numbers reached levels still unsurpassed in modern Croatia today. The government brought unprecedented economic and industrial growth high levels of social security, and a very low crime rate.
the country completely recovered from World War II and achieved a very high GDP and economic growth rate significantly higher than all of those in the present-day republic. Things were still looking up for Croatia, but it was still part of Yugoslavia at this time. Finally, Croatia declared independence from Yugoslavia on June 25, 1991, a day that is now celebrated as Statehood Day. At the same time, Serbs living in Croatian territory of Krajina proclaimed their independence from Croatia. Civil war was imminent. The Bosnian War from 1992 to 1995 was a territorial battle among the Serbs, Croats, and Bosnians that was characterized as the bloodiest event in Europe since World War II. Approximately 100,000 people died. A large number of them civilians and horrific war crimes were rampant. Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic and his soldiers attempted to ethnically cleanse parts of former Yugoslavia of Croats, Bosnians, and Muslims with the aim of creating what Milosevic called the Greater Serbia. When NATO finally intervened with airstrikes in 1995, opposing parties were forced to come to the table. The Dayton Peace Accords were signed on December 14, 1995, officially ending the war. Now, almost two decades since the end of the war, Croatia is well established as a safe, independent, and tourist-friendly country. With a strong economy and a stable government, Croatia is finally at peace. In July of 2013, Croatia joined the European Union as the 28th member. It's a beautiful country full of wonderful people despite its chaotic, haphazard past. Some parts of that past have managed to linger. However, let's take a look at some of the traditional funeral practices in Croatia. While Croatia is mostly Catholic, some of the old traditions of their Slavic and Serbian ancestors of their ancestors have managed to stick around. Keep in mind, each region is different depending on their beliefs, so a particular practice that we'll be looking at may be common in the southern region of the country, such as Dalmatia. Burial is more preferred over cremation, though it's not uncommon. In the case of cremation, the ashes are not allowed to be kept by the family and must be scattered or buried away. The funeral rites of those that were buried are ones that I actually find rather endearing. Not much is known about the afterlife that traditional Croats believe in, but the evidence of these burial practices suggests that they do in fact believe in life after death. There is a series of unwritten rules for their dead, all coming from a mixture of respect and fear. Following the death of a member of the community, a burial takes place almost immediately. I'm saying like in 24 hours. The body is carried out of the house head first with a funeral possession and mourners following behind. Back in the old days, in the winter, they used chariots and sled to transport the body. Sometimes to symbolize their grief, they took one wheel off the chariot, the right wheel for men and the left wheel for women. Families would wear mourning attire, usually black clothing or clothing with black ribbons and buttons. Women would put flowers in their hair as a symbol of renewed life. At the cemetery, he or she is prepped for the funeral with a ritual cleansing bath and dressed in a nice formal clothing. For children and young single adults, they're dressed in white. Visiting the deceased family is allowed within several hours and a black scarf is hung on the door outside the dead 
person's home. It will stay there for about a month. A modern funeral takes place, officiated by a key member of the community, and the family and friends of the deceased will stay in the cemetery with food and drink as the wake begins. They will stay up all night, keeping vigilance over the grave. You may ask why. I certainly do. Because the spirit of their loved one should not be alone in the dark. I think that's kind of cool. I don't know about you, but I like it. At the same time, it represented an opportunity for the neighbors and the other villagers to say goodbye to the deceased and to remember his or her life together. Since such social events used to take place accompanied by food and drink, the atmosphere would often become very relaxed under the influence of wine and brandy, thus leading to anecdotes and funny joint adventures being told about the the deceased. In such situations, laughing is not considered inappropriate since they believed that the deceased would leave the world more easily in a merry atmosphere. Hallelujah, I completely believe that. I want everybody laughing at mine. At the end of the wake, the remaining mourners went home, being careful to remove any grave dirt from their shoes. But some believed that the dirt could protect them from evil, so they quietly put it back when no one was looking. I can only imagine what they ate and drank as they waited through the night, keeping each other uh, company and the recently departed being right there beside them. A nice wine, maybe some brandy, along with a traditional Croatian dish of pika, which brings us to my favorite part of the episode. Let's dive into our recipe of the week. This recipe is my adaptation of one of one from Flawless Food, which they adapted from an original Croatian recipe. So thanks go out to Kay and Luke for their contribution. So my first questions as a listener would be, is a recipe that is adapted twice really authentic? Well, I think it is. If you're taking a recipe and you're making it your own, and it's truly one of the best ways you can be in the kitchen. As I often say, if you never fail, then you aren't trying hard enough. So, you know, find that recipe you like and make it your own. Plus, the traditional bell-shaped iron or ceramic pot that's used in this method isn't really something that's readily available. Let's keep this simple and create some good Croatian-esque food. My recipe is a lamb chicken pika. I like the way that these two meats complement each other in this dish, So, and it's quite a bit less expensive to use chicken instead of lamb. At least it is in southern Florida. You're going to need a good-sized pot with a lid. For more authentic cooking experience, you can cook your pika over an open fire and cover the pot with coals. I cook mine in the oven. You make your decision. Your list of ingredients are one and a half pounds of small potatoes, one chopped zucchini, one chopped large carrot, one chopped green onion, one chopped green pepper, one small chopped eggplant, one medium chopped white onion, one and a half pounds of large diced lamb, one pound of diced chicken breast, one tablespoon of minced garlic, one tablespoon of tomato puree, one half a cup of olive oil, one cup of white wine, one teaspoon of minced fresh rosemary, one teaspoon of minced fresh thyme, salt and pepper to your own taste. Preheat your oven at 425. That's Fahrenheit. 
Mix your garlic, tomato, thyme, rosemary, salt, pepper, all in a bowl. Add the oil and stir it well. In your pot, add the vegetables. Place the meat on top of the vegetables and pour the oil mixture and then the wine over everything. Place the lid on your pot and cook in the oven for 90 minutes. Remove the lid and stir it. Add a couple of tablespoons of oil if the dish looks like it's getting a little dry and then cook for an additional 30 minutes uncovered. Serve hot with your favorite bread and make sure to eat that au jus. That's the best part of the dish. I've been your host, Scott Parrish, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and discovering this hidden gem with me. This show is made possible by listeners like you. I'd like to give a special shout out to Kumi Max, Cochrane Bluebirds, and Vivi McSwain. Your support drives the show, and we enjoy hearing from you. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Dying to Eat Podcast. Let us know what topics you'd like to hear and find future and past episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to drop us a like, a five-star rating, and don't forget to hit that like button to stay updated on the next episodes. Until next time, stay lively.